All right, we've been engaged in this study for the past few weeks called Under the Radar, a study of the Bible's unsung heroes. And last week, uh, we continued this study with one of the Bible's greatest figures who flew under the radar. Remember, as we try to find our place in the body of Christ, there are so many functions, so many different roles and abilities that God has instilled within each of us. We simply have to find what it is. What has God appointed unto us to do with the talents and abilities He's given to us? And that's one of the things we talked about our first study in this uh, series under the radar in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we try to find our place in the body of Christ. And so each week we've been looking at these under-the-radar figures throughout the Scripture who are the unsung heroes, who don't get most, most of the sermons, some of the highlighting that the bigger characters get. And so last week we began with our, uh, or excuse me, two weeks ago we began with our first character, our first figure, in Mordecai, and we saw and we, we saw how he flew under the radar and saved the entire Jewish race from Haman. And we saw that he was persistent and he was humble in his faith. And that's the thing that saved the day. Mordecai, even though he isn't the one that the book is named after, he changed the course of history. And then last week, we fast forward to last week, and we saw we saw the life of Luke. We looked at Luke. And we looked at who he was, what he did, and why he matters. And so when we looked at who Luke was, we saw that he was the only Gentile writer in the entire New Testament. We saw that he was a fellow laborer of Paul, that Paul called him the beloved physician. We saw that he gave Theophilus this orderly account of the life of Jesus, and in so doing gives us the most descriptive gospel of the four gospels. We saw that even though he wasn't an apostle, he was simply a disciple. Even though he was just a disciple, he made the impact that none other probably did. So when we looked at what Luke did, we saw that he wrote the majority of the New Testament. Because Luke, his gospel, is the longest book of the New Testament, and Acts of the the Apostles is is the third longest book of the New Testament. So he wrote the majority of the entire New Testament. We saw that in the Gospel of Luke, he wrote about Jesus being this Savior to all humanity. That he was the only one to include stories like the prodigal son, the Pharisee and the publican, the story of Zacchaeus and the rich man and Lazarus. And then we saw in his Acts of the Apostles that Luke wrote the only record of the history of the church beginning that we have. And in so doing, he gave us an accurate measuring point for our constant pursuit of restoring that first century church. Luke gave us that account for us to follow, giving us the original intent that God had for his church and for us to aspire to it. Lastly, we saw that his companionship with Paul was vitally important because he was there to experience all the pain, all the suffering, all of the persecutions that Paul experienced. That he was there being that beloved physician to help heal his wounds. That he was the only one there at the end to be with Paul. So when we looked at why he matters, we saw that Luke preserved. He preserved, potentially, the three most important things in all the New Testament. He preserved the life of Jesus through His Gospel. He preserved the life of the church through the Acts of the Apostles. And He preserved the life of Paul by being His fellow companion. And so tonight we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at two stories that are very similar to each other, but we may not be that familiar with them. I believe we'll be more familiar with one of them than the other. We're going to be looking at two moments in Scripture that if it does not go exactly the way it went, there is no telling how different the entire scope of the Bible as we know it would be. We're going to be looking at two stories where Satan almost threw off God's entire providential plan that he had from the beginning. 
Tonight we're going to be studying three women who saved the nation of Israel, who saved the bloodline of Jesus, and because of their faith are why we are here tonight. We're going to learn if they had not been in the picture, none of us would even know each other tonight because we wouldn't be here. Because of what they did had that big of an impact. We're going to see how their role in the narrative of Scripture changed everything. Tonight, we're going to be studying about the lives of Shipra, Pua, and Jehosheba. Say those fast. Also, as we continue our study, these are another great three names to add to your baby list. 2021, anybody having a baby? Shipra, Pua, Jehoshapha, very good, very, I mean, very popular names. Uh, but no, seriously, these are some of the greatest unsung heroes in all the Bible. Our first story takes place in Exodus chapter 1 as we look at Shipra and Pua. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 7 through 21, we're going to see how they changed the scope of the entire Bible. Let's go ahead and read the beginning of this story tonight. Starting in verse 7, it says, But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more mightier than we. Come, lest us, uh, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And let's stop right there as we begin this story and set the context of what is about to happen. So if you remember a few weeks ago, maybe a, month, a few months ago, we had the life of Joseph. We studied that on Sunday nights in the roundtable study. And so we studied the life of Joseph who made that great impact, who changed the course of human history himself by saving all the, the thousands of people that he saved through that famine. But here at the beginning of Exodus, we find that there is this Pharaoh, this king who knew not Joseph. He wasn't there to see Joseph interpret those dreams. He wasn't there to watch Joseph save the entire nation and surrounding nations by storing all that grain and food for the time of famine. You see, this king, this Pharaoh, had no context to why this nation of Israel even mattered. All he saw was a potential problem. All he saw was a potential for these people, these Israelites, to one day take over Egypt. He saw this potential for them to become mightier than them, the text says. What if they become mightier than us? You know, this wasn't that ridiculous of a thought that Pharaoh had, if you think about it, coming from a context of someone who has no idea who the Israelites are and how they fear God. He, he, he simply sees them as this huge, huge number of people. You know, sometimes we don't realize how many Israelites there really were at that time. You know that scholars suggest that there at that time, at the time of the Exodus at least, at the time of Moses, at the time of the Exodus, they suggest that there could have been two to three million Israelites. Two to three million Israelites that left and fled Egypt at the time of Moses. So obviously there probably was a pretty serious problem that this Pharaoh was having with the Israelites. He was scared to death. He didn't know what they were capable of or what they would do one day. And so what he does is he, he creates this plan to put them under subjection. He says, hey, let's make them work. 
Let's make him work so hard and, and burden them with these taskmasters. Let's make their lives terrible and bitter, the text says. Let's bind them with mortar and brick and let's be as harsh as we possibly can be with them and maybe, maybe we can get this under control. But as the text says, no matter what kind of pain, what kind of bondage, what kind of different rules and regulations he put in place, the numbers of the Israelites just continue to grow and grow and grow. So much so that verse 12, let's read it again, it says, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So it's almost as if God was blessing the Israelites with the more, the more that the Pharaoh harmed them, the more God was like, well, we're going to continue to grow this and multiply. And so that's exactly what takes place. And the Pharaoh has no idea what he's going to do to get this under control. So he hatches this new idea. He comes up with this new plan. And let's read verses 15 and 16. It says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiprah, and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. You see, the next best plan was simply to cut off their male children. You know, if we, if we can't simply make them stop having children by working them and, and maybe working them to their graves, then let's just, instead of working them, let's just never allow them to grow up. Let's never allow them to grow into men to, who could one day supplant us, who could one day overthrow us. And so what he does, he enlists these two women, Shiprah and Puah, to cut off the male children at birth and kill them. You see, when we think about these two women, you realize these would obviously not be the only two midwives in all of Israel. But some scholars suggest that these were the two head midwives, that they had many midwives under them that helped them. And so these were the two most prominent midwives in all of Israel. And so he calls them in. And he gives them this task. And he asks them to kill all the male children of Israel. But if they are female, to let them live. That was for his own purposes. That was for Egypt's purposes. We want the women, but we don't want the men. And so that was their task. That is what the Pharaoh told them to do. And for a moment before we continue the text or talk about anything else, I want us all to understand what the orders of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, meant at this time. I think I may have said this in our roundtable study in the story of Joseph. But when we think about the Pharaoh in Egypt, we have to understand that in that culture, he was like a god. Pharaoh was like a god, he was treated like a god, and he was thought of as a god. You know, growing up, one of my favorite movies, this is one of those moments where you're like, when were you born, Ben? Because I like old stuff. One of my favorite movies was Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments. Ever seen that from 1956? Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments. There's some smiling and some like, what is going on? Right, but this, this Charlton Heston movie depicts the Pharaoh as, I think he's the, it's the same actor from The King and I, I believe. But anyway, this Pharaoh is just so intense and he goes throughout the whole beginning of the movie and he, well, he, he has this line that he says over and over and it's so quotable, and my family would say it all the time. Whenever my dad brought down some kind of commandment, we would say this statement. And the Pharaoh would say in this movie over and over again, So let it be written. So let it be done. And that was it. In that movie, it was over. As soon as he said that, it was over. It was as good as done. And so it was funny growing up doing that joke because my dad would make a commandment and we would say the same thing, you know. He, 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 let it be written, let it be done, you know. But that's exactly a great depiction of how the Pharaoh acted in that time. 
When the Pharaoh said something, when the Pharaoh told you to do something, it was to be done. It was as good as already done. It could not be refuted, it could not be challenged, and it was to be followed regardless of what your opinion was on the matter. When the Pharaoh said to jump, you said how high. That's exactly what the context of this commandment to these two midwives would have been. So just think about the position that these two women have been put in. Here is the most powerful man in all the world giving you a direct order. He didn't pass it down from his underlings. He brought you in himself and told you specifically to carry this commandment out. And if you don't carry it out, he's going to kill you and probably your whole family for insurrection. So what do the women do? The text continues in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that He provided households for them. But the midwives feared God. These five words change the course of the Bible whether we realize them or not. These five words, but the midwives feared God, changed the entire scope of Scripture as we know it. Because they feared God, they did not do as the Pharaoh commanded. Instead, they saved the male children alive. And shocked, the Pharaoh pulls them back in and, and questions them about it. Why would you do this? Why would you not follow my order? And the midwives give this excuse and, and, you know, might have been a joke, might have been, uh, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was true. Maybe it was true that these Hebrew women were just stronger than Egyptian women and didn't need the midwives as much. But regardless of what it was, it pleased God, right? Some have questioned whether these women were blessed by lying. Regardless of what the case is, God blessed them for what they did and how they went about it. So we know whatever they did, or however they went about it, was not wrong, because God blessed them. Just look at what He does. Look at what God does to bless these midwives for what they did. It says that He dealt well with them, that the people multiplied because of them, that they grew mighty because of them, and because they feared God. The text says He provided households for them. You see, because of the language and the how this comes out and what this probably means when it comes to providing households for them, it's probably the case that these women, even though they were surrounded by birth all the days of their life, they couldn't have children themselves. But because they feared God when tested, God gave them households. He gave them a family. He gave them children prior to their defying the orders of Pharaoh, that would never have been an opportunity for them. But because they feared God, they saved the entire generation of Israelites. And so I want to ask this question, what if? What if Shipra and Puah did not have the faith to fear God? above all else. You see, when they feared God, they saved an entire generation of Israelites that would one day leave Egypt, that would set up the Mosaic Covenant, that would bring about the timeline of the Old Testament leading towards the coming of the Messiah, that then fulfilled the promise of Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And as we look at the story of the Bible, we look at the Old Testament, we look at the Abrahams, we look at the Moses, we look at all these huge figures in Scripture, but without Shipra and Puah, 
how meaningless would the bigger characters be? The promise made to Abraham would not have been accomplished because the line of Judah would be taken out. The line of Levi would be taken out. And as the next chapter suggests, maybe even Moses would have been taken out. All because of two Hebrew midwives named Shiprah and Pua. You see, because in the beginning parts of chapter 2, we find that man who led Egypt, led Israel out of Egypt. We find the birth of Moses. And because of this precedent that Shiprah and Pua made, we find Jochebed, the mother of Moses, refusing to let her son die. Now, we don't know if these women, these two specific midwives, personally presided at the actual birth of Moses, but it could very well be the case that they were there. It could be likely that they were there. But either way, their example of obeying God rather than man gave mothers like Jochebed the faith to save their children's life. But Shipra and Pua feared God. And the rest is history. I want you to imagine who could have been taken out by this command. All of the leaders of Israel throughout the wilderness. All the people that Moses depended on. The people that made it to the promised land and continued the nation of Israel after Moses, what if there was no Shipra or Pua? Our next story comes from the book of 2 Kings chapter 11. Turn there with me as we, begin our, uh, as we continue our study of these three women. 2 Kings chapter 11. Before we start reading, as we kind of jump from one story to the other, I want us to understand what's happening in the context of Israel at this time. You see, they have split into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And they have their kings and we have our kings and they do their thing and we do our thing. We'll combine on some things and we have good, good kings sometimes and bad kings sometimes, both ways. And that's the context of what's happening at the, in 2 Kings 11. The kingdom of God is entirely split in half. Let's look at chapter 10. We're not going to read any of it, but see what's happening here. Ahaziah has 42 of his brothers killed, and he is killed also. Guess by who? His cousin, Jehu, who started this coup, and they totally killed all of their relatives. And so as we get to chapter 11, as we look at what's about to happen in our study tonight, we find that after Ahaziah died, that his mother was not really happy about it. Shocker. She's not really happy that their own blood and flesh and blood did this. And so she is not really happy. Her name is Athaliah. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 2, Athaliah was the granddaughter of Omri. And we know that Omri, according to 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 18, was the father of Ahab. So we see that as we look at this story, we're, try, we're starting to see who this woman is. When we look at Athaliah, we've got to understand that her dad is Ahab. Yeah, that guy. The guy who was married to Jezebel. The guy who did all those horrible things to Elijah. The guy who was in charge of killing so many of God's people. This is his daughter, Athaliah. Ahab, obviously one of the worst kings in the history of God's people. The husband of Jezebel. It doesn't get any worse than that when it comes to a family. And here we find this woman named Athaliah who was the granddaughter of a king, the daughter of a king, the wife of King Jehoram, the mother of a king. You see, she was surrounded by kings her whole life. Her whole family were kings. But she never had any type of power. Until now. 
Now was her chance to get the power she probably always wanted. She was apparently sick of all these guys leading, so it was her turn. So she falls right in line with the craziness of her parents. The outright disregard for God or any type of righteousness like Ahab and Jezebel. And so she assumes the role of queen of Judah. You never hear much about this story, do you? You ever know there was a queen of Judah? Here she is, Athaliah. Obviously, she's a big proponent of Baal, like her parents before her. She couldn't care less about Yahweh. And that's the context of where our text picks up in 2 Kings chapter 11, verses 1-3. through 3. The text says, When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. But... Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah, so that he was not killed. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years, while Athaliah reigned over the land. You know, I really don't want to gloss over verse 1. As we see verse 1, it says, As she saw her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. You know, that would be one thing if you were a foreign queen or a foreign person and you had no context or who these people were. You realize who she's killing? She's killing her own grandchildren. She's killing her own flesh and blood. You thought Jezebel was bad. This woman named Athaliah is killing her own grandchildren. Why? Because they're heirs to the throne. And she wanted it all for herself. Why? Because they're the descendants of Judah. And she knew that she wanted it all for herself. You know, why is this idea of this line of Judah, this descendants of Judah, why is it so important? I think we all know. We look at Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 through 10, and we see the reason why it's important. Before we read it, we see as part of Jacob's words and imparting advice and blessings to his children, he says to Judah in Genesis 49, verses 9 through 10, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between, from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. You see, Jacob set the precedent that the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Jesus Christ. We also know that in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, John the Revelator is weeping. Why? Because he sees this scroll that no one can open. No one is able to open the scroll or to loosen its seal and he has no idea what's going on. Why can't anybody open this? And no one can do it. And then in Revelation 5 and verse 5, we see the angel console John and say, there's somebody who can do it. And the text says, but one of the elders said to me, do not... Weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. You see, this lion of Judah, this scepter that shall not depart from Judah, we know that this is Jesus. Jesus, we know it's Him because in both genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke 3, we see how both of them tie the lineage of Jesus Christ through the tribe of Judah. And he truly was king of kings. But back in our text in 2 Kings 11, do you realize that all of that, all of that is in question? 
if Athaliah's will is accomplished, the entire line of Judah would have been wiped out. The scepter would have had to depart from Judah because there wouldn't have been another for it to go to. There would be no one worthy of opening those scrolls. There would be no descendants that came from Judah down to the Christ in the genealogies that we just talked about. And she almost accomplished it. She almost did it. She almost single-handedly wiped out the entire bloodline of Judah, all the royal heirs, and she almost ruined the plan of God all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3 and verse 15. But, but, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, this daughter of King Joram, this half-sister to Ahaziah who had died. See, Athaliah wasn't her mother. Athaliah was Ahaziah's mother, not Jehoshaphat's. This woman, Jehoshaphat, took Joash, this brand new baby and the rightful heir to the throne, and hid him away. She hid him away in the house of the Lord for six years as Athaliah reigned as queen over Israel. For a moment, I want us to stop and realize how long six years is. No, it's not as long as some of our sermons. It's much longer than that. Six years. Think about how long of a time that is. Six years ago, Jeremy Pate only had two kids. Six years ago, Jeremy was starting his first year here. Six years ago, Kyle was still in Florida. Six years ago, Jensi was dating somebody else. You know, it's, it's crazy to think about what happens in the course of six years. Six years ago, we had no idea who was running for the 45th president of the United States, much less the 46th. Can you believe that? In the course of six years, think about all the things that have happened. Do you realize how long six years is? How long 2,190 days? And how much can happen in between that time? For you kids that are here tonight in the corner, what do you think about fourth graders? What do you think about fourth graders? You think they're wise? They, they, got, they got a lot of things going for them? They can do a lot by themselves? No! They're over there learning their multiplication tables. But do you realize six years is the difference between you being in fourth grade and you being able to legally drive? Boom, boom, boom. You know, like it's crazy to think about how long six years is. From being 10 years old in fourth grade to being 16 years old and being able to drive in 10th grade is the difference of six years. Just think about how long I've been around this place. It's been six years. That's a long time. Why would Jehoshaphat do this? Why would she risk her life, her husband's life, and live in hiding for six years? Do you think it was fun? you think it was fun to live in hiding for six years, knowing that if you ever found, you would probably die? Knowing that if you were found, you would per take on that responsibility of the ending of the line of Judah? You see, when we look at Jehoshaphat, according to 2 Chronicles 22 and verse 11, Jehoshaphat was the wife of the priest Jehoiada. The priest Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat sacrificed everything they had because they feared God. They had faith in Yahweh. They did not worship Baal. And they knew the lineage of Judah must be preserved. And if they didn't step up and save Joash, all would be lost. So Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada raised the child, Joash. 
And once it was time, they overthrew Athaliah and established Joash as the rightful heir to the throne. Look at 2 Kings chapter 11 and verse 21. It says, Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. You see, sometimes he's known as Joash, sometimes he's known as Jehoash. But nevertheless, it's the same person. You know, we give Josiah a lot of highlight about being eight years old at the time of king, but we find here that Joash was seven years old at the time he became king. Was he a good king? Did he do good things? Well, look at 2 Kings chapter 12. In verses 1 and 2, it says, In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash came, became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother name was Zebiah of Beersheba. Jo- Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Joash. This seven-year-old grew into a great king who was faithful to God. And you see as the text continues in chapter 12, was responsible of renovating the temple to its former glory. If there's anything about the temple, I want you to fix it, he said. Anything that needs fixing, I need you to renovate. I need you to fix it up to its former glory. We see that he reigned for 40 years. That's much longer than most of the kings of Judah and Israel. 40 years. And after that 40 years, we know that his son Amaziah fell after his place. Was he a good king? Well, the text tells us that he was a good king and did what was right in the sight of God, according to 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 3. His son Amaziah was a good king. Well, what happened after Amaziah? We saw that Uzziah became king. The grandson of Joash, was he a good king? Well, he led Israel to their most prosperous time since Solomon and Jehoshaphat. And we find that he was a good king and did what was right in the eyes of God according to 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 3. Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, none of it would have happened if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat. None of this would happen. There would be no Joash, there would be no Amaziah, there would be no Uzziah, no continuing lineage down all the way to the birth of Jesus. None of this would have transpired if Jehoshaphat did not fear God. But because she did, the rest is history. You know, some people in our study so far may be thinking to yourself as we looked at Luke and as we looked at Mordecai and tonight as we looked at these three women, these three unsung heroes. Some of you may be thinking to yourself, oh, he's just, he's just being dramatic. I'm dramatic sometimes. People know that. People are smiling. But I'm not being dramatic in this study. Without these unsung heroes, there is no way to quantify the difference that God's Word would have. Some of you may be thinking he's just being dramatic. Surely God would have found another way. You know, it's hard for me to believe God wouldn't have found some other person to save the entire generation of Israelites. Surely there would have been another Shipra or Pua that could have swept in and saved the day. There's no way God would let Joash die. Surely someone else would have saved his life. Jehoshaphat, she did a good thing, she did a great thing, but someone else would have done it too, right? If I was there, I definitely would have saved the little kid. That's what someone may be thinking tonight. And I understand that line of thinking. I understand that maybe there even is some merit to it, that God would pull it off somehow or some way. However, I think instead of assuming how God would or would not pull it off, I think it's good for us to realize that if these under-the-radar figures had not been in the picture, it wouldn't have been pulled off the way it was. Because of these unsung heroes, we don't have to wonder how God would have pulled it off. 
You know, it's easy for us thousands of years later to look back and go, oh, you know, that's not that big of a deal. Someone else would have stepped up and completely undermined the role that Jehoshaphat, Shiprah, and Puah had on the scope of Scripture. Instead, we need to understand how amazing it is that we don't have to wonder how God pulled it off because these women did it for Him. These women were His arms and feet and His entire way He pulled it off through providence and through His will. And because they stepped up, they changed the course of humanity forever. We don't have to know what life would be like, how the Bible would have transpired or who would have stepped up to their, take their place because Shiprapu and Jehoshaphat were the ones that did it. And it's not right for us to assume someone else would have because who else was doing it at that time? Who else was there to save Joash and the generations of Israelites? You see, we don't have to theorize. All we need to do this quarter and tonight is shine light on these three powerful women who even though their stories, when you look at them both, we have a combined one sentence vocalized by any of them. They never said a word except for what Shipra and Pua said to the Pharaoh. We don't get a single line from Jehoshaphat of why she did what she did. Even though they have such a small part in the narrative of Scripture, they changed everything. And they were the difference makers. Even though they weren't larger than life characters like Moses or like someone that is in the lineage of Judah that needs to be preserved, God used them to save the providential plan. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and following are some of the most important verses in all the Bible, in my opinion. Paul says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that, he might, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth His Spirit of, of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You see, when we look at the Old Testament and we find all of these different stories and all of these different examples and all of these different times where the entire nation of Israel is in the balance, that was God bringing about the fullness of the time. Because of Shipra because of Pua, because of Jehoshaphat, the fullness of the time had come. You see, God had to preserve the bloodline of Jesus. He had to bring about this fullness of time, which means He had to preserve the generations that those midwives saved, which means He had to preserve the life of Joash that Jehoshaphat saved which led to the life of Amaziah, which led to the life of Uzziah, which led to the life of whoever came after came that, all the way to Jesus. God had to have that happen. And because of these three women, the fullness of the times came. And because the fullness of the times came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive the inheritance as sons, so that we don't have to be slaves, but we can be sons. these three women brought about or were part of the bringing about of the fullness of the time. And because of that, we can be heirs of God through Christ. Because of Shiprah, Pua, and Jehoshaphat, we have the promise of being an heir tonight. 
without them, none of us would be here tonight. Do you realize that? But you might be thinking tonight, well, how can I be like these women? I'm not in a position to save any child's life. I'm, I'm not in a position to hide an heir to some throne somewhere for six years. How can I be a Shiprapua or a Jehoshaphat? It is true that not all of us can be a Moses. Not all of us can be some important person in the line to the throne of Judah. But it is also absolutely true that every single one of us can be like these three women who shaped the entire Bible by what they did. How? You realize all that they did was fear God. Shipra, Pua, and Jehoshaphat feared God. That's exactly what Exodus explicitly says, that they feared God, and because they feared God, they saved an entire generation of God's people. Jehoshaphat and her husband Jehoiada feared God and sacrificed everything to save the child Joash. You see, they didn't care about whether they would lose their life. They didn't seek to preserve their own life. They put the lives of others before themselves because they knew that's what it meant to fear God. And that's what fearing God called them to do. Ben, what do you mean by fearing God? Are, are you saying I should be scared of God? Are you saying I should... Be afraid of God? Were, were these women afraid of God? And so because of their fear in that sense of the term, they, they did what they should do? What does it mean to fear God? I, I want to be like these women who changed the course of history, but what does it mean to fear God? When we think about biblical reverence, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about fearing God. Biblical fear is a reverence for. It's a respect for. It's a dedication to. It's a submitting to God regardless of the consequences. That's what fearing God is. Shipra and Pua disregarded the orders of the most powerful man in the world. Why? Because they had reverence for respected, they were dedicated to, and they submitted to God because He's the most powerful person of all. Jehoshaphat went against her own family because she had reverence for her. She respected, she was dedicated to, and submitted to God above all else. Tonight I want each of us to put ourselves in the situation of these three women. Put ourselves in their shoes and ask, what would I have done? Would I fear God enough to submit to Him regardless of what that meant for my life? Regardless of what that meant for my friends and my family? Would I fear God enough to revere and to respect and to submit to and to commit to whatever the fallout might be. Do we hold God in that high reverence and respect? It's easy for us to say, yeah, of course I do. But when the times are hard, and when it's not fun, do we? Would we fear God enough to submit to Him and fear Him anyway? And do we put God above all else? Even when it's uncomfortable? Even when it's going to take up our time Six years of your life, in Jehoshaphat's case. Even if it's pushing us out of our comfort zones, even when no one else around us are willing to, do we fear God?
It takes me to our Sunday night study on Ecclesiastes. As we, as we have been studying that study, we've said our perp- the purpose statement of the book is found in Ecclesiastes 12, where he says, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments. You see, we each can be like these three women. Because they feared God. And that's all it took. You see, I hope all of us see tonight that if we're going to ever be a functioning part of the body of Christ, then it's going to take us fearing God. If we fear Him the way these three women did, there is no telling the impact in how much we will accomplish for His kingdom. But the reverse is also true. If we don't fear God the way Shipra, Pua, and Jehoshaphat did, the ramifications and the detriment to the church of Christ might be just too much for us to comprehend. Tonight, as we look at ourselves and as we go into the next, you know, the, the new year, the next year coming up, as we see all of our lives and all the, 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 the pain and all of the chaos and all of the weird stuff that happened this past year, I think all of us need to take a look at ourselves and ask. Do I fear God? Because if we fear God, God, the Bible is the one that tells us in Romans 8 and verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This week as I've studied these three women that I've never taken the time to look at, It's really challenged me. I hope it's challenged you tonight. And I hope that as we go into the next year, we all will realize our entire duty here on this world and in this earth is to fear God and to keep His commandments. Thank you for your attention. Next week we're going to have a singing Next week, I believe it's one of the days right before New Year's, so we're going to have a singing. Love for you to be there. We're going to be closed out in a word of prayer by our brother Jim.